0: You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everyone, and yes, indeed, it is another episode of the podcast. This is version 32 of the show. Appreciate you guys tuning in. We have a very busy episode for you uh, this week. As the PGA Tour wrapped up a pretty high-profile golf tournament and the NFL, uh, my goodness, free agency opened in the NFL, and we have a ton of free agent news and topics to get into with the NFL. So, And, of course, we'll get you caught up on all the other sports news. Uh, March Madness is starting this week as well, college basketball, best time of the year for that. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit as well. Uh, but we're going to start off in the PGA Tour. And this past weekend's tournament was the Players Championship, which is always held at TPC Sawgrass in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. It was a par seventy-two. Distance was seven thousand one hundred eighty-nine yards. And of course, we know TPC Sawgrass with that seventeenth hole, that island green, definitely one of the more prolific uh, golf courses uh, on tour. Uh, one of the most iconic in the world. Uh, this is the biggest purse tournament of the year as well. Um, winner got $2.7 million, which is more than any major championship. And we had, of course, a stacked field for it. Uh, top 48. Uh, 48 of the top 50 in the world were in the field. Uh, Brooks Kepka, he had to withdraw due to a knee injury, so he was not uh, in it. But... Um, Man, first round, we had some swirling winds. Beautiful weather all weekend as far as uh, no rain, no clouds really even. Uh, but there was some swirling wind on, a wind on Thursday, which caused a almost record 35 balls went into the water on the par three seventeenth hole on Thursday alone, which is the second most balls in the water on the 17th hole in the shot link era. So they were just flying in left and right uh, on that island green. Just everybody was plunking them. Uh, And it really, I mean, it got a little easier over the weekend, but not much. There were quite a few balls that went into the water there on 17. But Sunday's final pairing was Bryson DeChambeau and Lee Westwood, which marked the second Sunday in a row that those two were the final pairing. They did that. They were the final pairing at the Arnold Palmer Invitational the week before as well. Uh, Which is the first time in 14 years that we've had the same final pairing on back-to-back weeks on the PGA Tour. So pretty neat to see there, especially from Westwood. Um, But when it was all said and done, neither one of those two won. It was Justin Thomas who ended up winning with a score of 14 under par. That 14 under par is significant because that was Justin Thomas's 14th career victory on tour, which is the third most victories by a player before turning 28 years old. Of course, the two that had more than that were Tiger Woods with 39 and Jack Nicholas with 25. But JT joins Tiger Woods as the only player in, t- uh, in tour history to win a major a player's championship, and have 10-plus wins on tour before the age of 28. So, again, JT, you, you don't need to need me to tell you how good he is at golf. If you watched that tournament this weekend, uh, you saw exactly how good JT is. But realistically, Justin Thomas was only two under through two rounds. He had a pair of 71s Thursday and Friday, went one under each of those days, but then just went absolutely nuclear on Saturday with an eight under 64, which – Shot him right up the leaderboard. And then he ended up closing on Sunday with a final round, 68, which is four under. And in that final round on Sunday, between holes 9 and 12, JT went birdie, birdie, eagle, birdie. So five under in that four-hole stretch, which at that point, it was pretty clear that Justin Thomas was going to win. Uh, He was on a mission, and he was just hunting down the leaders and uh, it, it really looked like that was the turning point of the entire uh, Sunday round but Justin Thomas's closing 36 hole score of 132 was tied for the lowest in players championship history so again he went 12 under over the weekend uh, which really just was impressive golf to say the least but second place was Lee Westwood at 13 under par, just one shot back. And he played great golf again this week, uh, but just like last week, could not finish. And he was in that final pairing with Bryson DeChambeau when then he went out and fired an even par 72 on Sunday, which was actually his worst round of the tournament. All three of his other rounds were under par. We had a two-way tie for third place, and that was... Bryson DeChambeau at 12 under par and Brian Harmon at 12 under par. Now, Brian Harmon, he just played good, consistent golf all weekend. Uh, The highlight of his round, uh, well, of the tournament, uh, rather, was uh, his hole-out eagle on the par-4 first hole during Friday's second round. Very impressive hole-out, by far his best shot of the tournament. Now, Bryson DeChambeau, was also tied for third. He really came out flying in this thing with a pair of three under 69's followed that up with a five under 67 on Saturday to put him in that final pairing on Sunday for the second week in a row. And he just came up a little short this week as well. He shot a one under 71 on Sunday which obviously allowed JT to catch up and pass him but Bryson Just had an absolutely atrocious double bogey on the par four fourth hole on Sunday, where he topped his tee shot uh, with a hybrid and went right into the sand like 150 yards in front of him. Maybe not even that far. And I think his next shot maybe went into the water or something or way wide. He ended up having to shoot his fifth shot from the pine needles. It was it was roughly pin high. Uh, But his shot for bogey was from the pine needles, and he actually ended up putting this thing within about three feet. It was a damn good shot from where he was at. So he ended up saving double bogey, if you can even do that. But uh, there was also a two-way tie for fifth place. Taylor Gooch and Paul Casey both went 11 under par. Taylor Gooch... Man, he wasn't even a factor until Sunday when he closed out with a 5-under-67. And that kind of moved him up and made him uh, noticeable. Now, Paul Casey, he had a pair of 67s, 5-under-67s on Friday and Saturday to really kind of get his name up on the t- upper half of that leaderboard. Uh, but it was, yeah, great tournament. Uh, let's check out Rick's Picks to Click from the Players' Championship. It wasn't a good week, I'll tell you that. Uh, first one I gave you was Tommy Fleetwood. Uh, he historically had played well at TPC Sawgrass with two top seven finishes the last two tournaments. But he came out with a three-over 75 on Thursday that featured two double bogeys and then actually ended up shooting a one-under 71 on Friday to put him at two over, which was one shot over the cut line. So Fleetwood actually missed the cut by a shot. So that was a miss on him. Now, my second pick to click was Colin Morikawa. He took the Arnold Palmer Invitational off to rest, but he had won the World Golf Championship at concession the week before that. Looked really good in that. And I figured if he played as well as he did at the concession on a week of rest, I didn't see why he would not at least finish inside the top 25. Well, Morikawa barely hung on to make the cut. Uh, He made the cut by a shot heading uh, into the weekend at even par and then went out on Saturday and just had a disastrous 4-over-76 to basically remove any sort of hype of him being in contention. Now, he did come out on Sunday and shoot a 6-under-66, which made up for that 4-over that he was sitting at coming into Sunday, and he ended up finishing at 2-under par, which was tied for 41st. So I whiffed on Morikawa as well. Now, my final pick-to-click for the Players' Championship was John Rahm. Rom had the 54-hole lead back in 2019, which is the last time this tournament was played. Before blowing that, he's been a pretty solid golfer here this season. Five top 10 so far. So I like for him to to come out and take a run at this thing. Now heading into the weekend, after Friday's round, he was at four under par, which kept him near the top of the leaderboard. But then. Uh, Saturday, he actually went out and fired a 5-under-67, which put him right at the top. And then Sunday came out flat with a 1-over-73, so uh, he stayed inside that top 10. He finished at 8-under-par, which was good for T9. So I got a top 10 finish out of those three, but I did miss on two of the three. So I I did go one for three on the picks to click, but... This weekend's tournament is the Honda Classic, which is held at the PGA National Course in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. This one's a par 70, which is, those aren't as common, and the distance is 7,125 yards. And as you would suspect, after a week after a huge tournament, basically a major, uh, the field is not great this week. The highest-ranked player in the field this week is Daniel Berger at number 15 in the world. So that just kind of tells you what we're looking at. Now, an odd thing about this week with the PGA Tour, the PGA received three positive COVID tests this past week, which is the most in any one week since June of 2020. Now, the golfers that tested positive this past week are Gary Woodland, Scott Piercy, and Doc Redmond. And, of course, all three of those guys are going to miss the Honda Classic. But uh, hopefully that's not a a trend moving forward. I know nationally, I think with the vaccines out, I think we've seen our positive test rate drop. So I would hope that that would carry over into uh, sports. But stay tuned on that. But let's check out Rick's picks to click for the Honda Classic. First one I'll give you is Adam Scott. Uh, he's ranked number 25 in the world and he's made the cut in each of his last 12 starts so he's been playing well uh, at least well enough to make the cut every week now historically at PGA national he's played well as uh, you know as overall and since 2014 he's four for five on cuts at the Honda Classic with all four finishes being inside the top 15 one of which was a win Uh, Adam Scott won this thing back in 2016. So given the lackluster field and and the fact that he's been playing consistent golf through the weekend, I like for Adam Scott to at least finish inside the top 25. My second pick to click this week is Lee Westwood. He's number 19 in the world rankings. He's coming off of back-to-back second-place finishes course it's the Arnold Palmer and the players and we just talked about he was in the final pairing each of the last two weeks obviously playing a really great golf at the moment Uh, he's and uh, again at PGA National he has historically played really well he's seven for seven in cuts made with four top 10 finishes in those seven starts and he tied for fourth here last year at the Honda Classic so Westwood uh, I feel is pretty much you know if he's been plays half as good as he's been playing the last 2 weeks I think he's he's probably a shoe in for a top 25 finish but my final pick to click this week for the Honda Classic is Daniel Berger I mentioned just a few minutes ago he's the highest ranked player in the field at number 15 he's a Florida native went to Florida State played a lot of Florida courses and he's got four top 10 finishes in his last six starts, including a win at Pebble Beach and a T9 last week at the Players. So, Berger's playing good golf. He likes Florida courses. Give me Daniel Berger to uh, finish inside that top 25, and I think Berger's got a really legitimate chance to win. But the Honda Classic, I forgot to mention, uh, is going to wrap up that four-week swing uh in on the on PGA Tour where they've had four consecutive weeks in Florida but we'll move on to the National Basketball Association and we'll do a standings update like we normally do of course last week we didn't do one because the week before that was the all-star game but we'll uh, look at the standings real quick and we'll start off in the Eastern Conference we got a tie atop the Eastern Conference between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets. Both teams are 28 and 13, and both teams are playing really well. Philly has uh, won eight out of their last 10. Brooklyn, they've gone 14 and 1 in their last 15 games, and they still don't have Kevin Durant. They haven't had Kevin Durant in over a month. And he's still not due back for at least another few weeks based on the last report dealing with the hamstring strain. So Brooklyn is on a six-game winning streak, 14 out of their last 15. They're looking good, and I say it every week. Nobody's beaten that team four times in seven games uh, here come playoff time. But third place in the East is the Milwaukee Bucks. They're 26-14. and 14. They're riding a five-game winning streak. They've also won 9 out of their last 10. And they made a big big trade that we'll talk about here and around the island. But the Miami Heat, they're fourth in the East, 22 and 19. Miami is 11 and 2 in their last 13 starts after uh, just a 11 and 17 start to the season. So a pretty terrible start, they've turned it around and they're looking pretty formidable uh at this point Charlotte Hornets they're 5th in the East 20 and 19 uh the Atlanta Hawks they're riding a 6 game winning streak as well they're 20 and 20 the Boston Celtics are 20 and 20 uh they've lost two in a row they're the 7th seed the 8th seed in the East currently is the New York Knicks at 20 and 21 Chicago Bulls are 18 and 21 Indiana Pacers have fallen back a little bit They've only won two out of their last ten. They're at 17-22. and 22. The Toronto Raptors, 17-23. Six-game losing streak for them. They are going in the complete wrong direction. Cleveland Cavaliers, 15-25. The Washington Wizards, 14-25. Orlando Magic's riding an eight-game losing streak. They're 13-26. And the Detroit Pistons, 11-29, slowly moving out of the basement. I mean, they're still in the basement in the East, but uh, there's some teams that are getting down to them. But in the Western Conference, the Utah Jazz are still the number one team there, 29-10. and 10. The Phoenix Suns picked up right where they've left off. They've won eight out of their last ten. They're 26-12, sitting at the second seed currently. The L.A. Lakers, they're still without Anthony Davis, uh, but they won three games in a row right now to move to 27-13. and 13. The Clippers, L.A. Clippers, they're 26-16. and 16. They just split two games with the Dallas Mavericks. The Denver Nuggets are 24-16. and 16. Uh, They've won eight out of their last ten as well. Portland Trailblazers are the 6th seed at 23-16. San Antonio Spurs are 21-16. And And my Dallas Mavericks are currently the 8th seed in the West at 21-18. They've won 7 out of their last 10. Uh, Picked up a big win Wednesday night against the Clippers. Gold State Warriors are 21-20. Memphis Grizzlies 18-19. New Orleans Pelicans 17-23. Oklahoma City Thunder 17 and 23 Sacramento Kings 16 and 24 Now the Houston Rockets My god they are 11 and 28 They have lost 18 games in a row The last 10 of which have been more they've lost the last 10 games by more than 10 points in each game that is absolutely atrocious, and you know what's sad is they're not even in last place in the Western Conference. The Minnesota Timberwolves are nine and thirty-one, two and a half games back of Houston. So, but I mean, when is Houston going to win? They were the other half of that trade that I just mentioned that we'll get into with the Bucks uh, here in a little bit. But Houston is just absolutely just a shell of themselves 18 games in a row I don't think you could try to lose 18 games in a row I mean they have John Wall and Victor Oladipo it's not like they have a team full of scrubs Uh, and Christian Wood too he's been really coming on this year so they have some good players I just don't understand how they're losing 18 games in a row but we'll move over to the National Hockey League and we'll do a standings update here for the NHL Uh, We've talked about NHL has a 56-game season uh, as opposed to the NBA's 72-game season. So there are a handful of NHL teams that are past the midway point of their seasons, uh, playing at least 28 games. That would be your halfway point. Uh, Quite a few teams actually have played at least 28 games. Um, But we'll start off in the Discover Central division. I say this every week, and it seems to be true the further we get into the season, and that's that the Central Division is going to be the toughest and most competitive in the NHL throughout the entire season. It's the only division with uh, with at least three teams over 40 points, as it currently sits right now. And the more weeks that pass, it seems as if the only true playoff spot up for grabs at the moment is that fourth seed because, as we recall, the top four teams in each division make the playoffs this year. So the first seed in the Central at the moment, Tampa Bay Lightning, 26-2 is their record. Won seven out of their last ten. Florida Panthers are 19-5-4. They've also won seven out of their last ten. Carolina Hurricanes, 27-1. and They've won eight out of their last ten. Chicago Blackhawks are 14, 11, and 5. Columbus Blue Jackets, 11, 12, and 7. My Dallas Stars are 6th in the Central at 9, 9, and 7. They have a very strange record. Um, they've only played 25 games, which is still the fewest games played in the National Hockey League because of their two major postponements, but... Their record's very odd. They have 25 points, 9 wins, 9 losses, 7 overtime losses. Now, that's not going to get it done. It seems as though the team they're chasing at the moment is the Chicago Blackhawks uh, for that final fourth seed in the Central. But the Nashville Predators are 7th, 12, 16, and 1. The Detroit Red Wings last in the Central, 9, 17, and 4. In the Mass Mutual East Division, This is getting pretty competitive, too, here at the moment. Uh, The Washington Capitals currently lead that division, 19-6-4. They've won nine out of their last ten. The New York Islanders are 19-7-4. They had a nine-game winning streak come to an end on Tuesday night when they lost to Washington. Pittsburgh Penguins, 18-10-1. They've won seven out of their last ten. Boston Bruins, 15-8-4. Philadelphia Flyers, 14-10-3. New York Rangers, 12-12-4. Interesting note about those two teams, the Flyers and the Rangers played each other on Wednesday night, and the Rangers just absolutely shellacked them to the tune of 9-0. The Rangers have scored seven goals In the second period, Uh, it was just horrific for the Flyers. It's one of those where you just can't wait to get the hell out of there, basically, for the Flyers. Uh, The final two seeds in the Mass Mutual East Division, New Jersey Devils 9-13-4, Buffalo Sabres 6-18-4. They have not won any games in their last 10, 0-9-1. More to come on them and around the island. In the Honda West Division, the Vegas Golden Knights, they've won eight out of their last ten. They are 26-1. Minnesota Wild have kind of made a late charge here, 18-8-1. Colorado Avalanche, 17-8-2. St. Louis Blues, 14-10-5. L.A. Kings, 12-10-6. Arizona Coyotes, 12-13-4. San Jose Sharks, 11, 13, and 3. And the Anaheim Ducks, uh, back in last place in the West, 8, 16, and 6. Now in the Scotia North Division. This division has played the most games. It's also the division that has not had any COVID issues. The only one that can say that. Atop that is the Toronto Maple Leafs, 19, 9, and 2. Winnipeg Jets, 18, 9, and 2. Edmonton Oilers, 19, and 13. Montreal Canadiens, 13, 8, and 8. Vancouver Canucks, 15, 16, and 2. They've won 7 out of their last 10. Calgary Flames, 14, 13, and 3. And the Ottawa Senators, 10, 20, and 3. Uh, again, still. About halfway through the NHL season, some teams have played a little more than half of their games. But uh, we're starting to see the playoff picture develop uh, in each division. And it's coming down to the wire. It will come down to the wire. It's going to be a very competitive finish to this NHL season. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. But we'll head over to the NCAA in college basketball. And March Madness has arrived uh, this tournament last year obviously got completely postponed and canceled because that was when uh, COVID started. So it is great that we made it through an entire college basketball season and have arrived at March Madness. I know everyone loves filling out those brackets and betting, and uh, it's just a, it's a great time, best part of the year for college basketball for sure. And – uh The uh, regular season ended, obviously, before this tournament. The Seeds got selected this past Sunday night, but uh, the Associated Press selected their first-team All-Americans. And, of course, these are men's first-team All-Americans, as decided by the Associated Press. Corey Kispert from Gonzaga, Jared Butler from Baylor, Luca Garza from Iowa, Io DeSonmu from Illinois and Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State. Now, the conference tournaments were played uh, last weekend uh, on basically Wednesday through Saturday, we'll say. And in the Big 12, uh, one of the two best conferences in the country, Kansas actually had to withdraw from the Big 12 tournament due to a positive COVID test, which they they were supposed to play my Texas Longhorns in that game. So the Longhorns actually got to go to the Big 12 Championship game without even having to play Kansas. Now, that is cheap, yes, but we had beat Kansas both meetings this regular season. So we had not lost to Kansas this season, which you probably figure we'd do we were due for a loss, but I will take a trip to the Big 12 championship game because in that Big 12 championship game, the Texas Longhorns beat the Oklahoma State Cowboys. So uh, a little bit of interesting news there um, on the COVID front, as we talked about last week with Duke basically knocking them out of the ACC tournament. But uh, we have arrived, of course, uh, at the March Madness tournament. Now, for the men's tournament, I talked about this several episodes ago. Uh, All rounds of the men's tournament are going to be played in the Indianapolis, Indiana area. So they'll be at venues in and around Indy to kind of create uh, that bubble for the men's tournament. And on the women's side, their bubble will be centered around the city of San Antonio, Texas. So again, it's just the NCAA, instead of having teams travel across country uh, for their round-robin games and then uh, changing locations for the Elite Eight, Final Four, whatever, uh, all the games are going to be in one central hub city. And uh, I think that's a good idea. It'll help limit travel, probably help cut down on any positive tests. And speaking of positive tests, the six top college basketball referees on the men's side have been removed from the NCAA tournament because one of them tested positive for COVID. So you may ask why the other five got booted, and it's because uh, those six referees arrived in Indianapolis last week, and they all went out to dinner at Harry and Izzy's Steakhouse in downtown Indianapolis last Sunday. And because of the contact tracing of the one positive test out of those six, the other five got booted. So they have already summoned in the other referees who are completing their COVID protocols as we speak, and uh, they'll be good to go. But uh, pretty, pretty easy to see why they're wanting to do the college basketball bubble once you hear about that. Now, I mentioned the brackets came out this past Sunday night. Uh, The seedings were announced and uh, the regions and all that. So the brackets were announced on this past Sunday. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire bracket. Uh, Obviously, there's 64 teams. There's a few play-in games that will take place this week, uh, Thursday. But on the men's side, you'll notice that Duke and Kentucky two high-profile, very uh, decorated college basketball universities did not make the NCAA tournament. The last time that both Duke and Kentucky missed the dance in the same year was 1976. That just doesn't happen. It's been a long time. And I told you Duke basically got booted uh, whenever their positive COVID test came up in the ACC tournament. And Kentucky never really had a chance. Uh, they were horrible this season. And never stood a chance. But taking a look at the bracket. I'll just go through the top three seeds in each region. Just so you have an idea of who the favorites to win the national title would be. Uh, on, And this is just for the men's side. In the West region... Your number one seed is Gonzaga. Number two seed is Iowa. And your number three seed is Kansas. In the south region, number one seed is Baylor. Number two seed is Ohio State. Number three seed is Arkansas. In the midwest region, number one seed Illinois. Number two seed Houston. Number three seed West Virginia. In the east region, number one seed is Michigan. Number two seed, Alabama. Number three seed, my Texas Longhorns. Now, my prediction for the men's tournament, I filled out my bracket, and my final four that I selected are Gonzaga, Texas, Baylor, and Illinois. I have Gonzaga and Illinois in the championship game, and I have Gonzaga beating Illinois for the national championship. Now you'll notice in my final four, I have three number one seeds and a number three seed. Uh, The number one seed doesn't usually make it in all four regions. Um, It's happened, it has happened, but for the most part, you do not see four number one seeds in the final four. So I tried to eliminate that in my bracket, but... I do have three out of my four Final Four teams being number one seats. Uh, I just do not see Gonzaga. They have the easiest path to get there. Uh, their schedule is pretty much cake. Baylor, they were so good throughout the year. Uh, they started off 18-0. and 0. Uh, I just don't, I, I don't see them losing uh, before the Final Four. And Illinois, uh, they are a very solid team. Iowa Dasunmu and Kofi Coburn, those guys are uh, rock stars, and they are tough to beat. Uh, And so I just don't see Illinois really losing before the the Final Four either. So uh, Michigan would be the top seed, the number one seed that I did not have going to the Final Four. And they probably have the most hellacious path to the Final Four out of the number one seeds because they have Alabama, and uh, Texas behind them, chomping at the bit. So uh, now a real quick note on the women's side. UConn, women's powerhouse. Their head coach, Gino Ariema, tested positive for COVID. So he's going to uh, miss the uh, at least the first game, which their first game is against number 16 seed High Point University. I didn't even know that was a university. I've never heard of it. But that's their first game, so Coach R.E.M. is going to miss that. No need to fret because I'm sure UConn's probably favored in that game by about 60 points. Uh, My pick for the women's to win the national title is UConn. The freshman sensation Paige Beckers. She's really just kind of taken women's college basketball by storm this year, looking really good. I just... UConn, is, they're always in contention. I think they're going to win it all this year on the women's side. But we'll move on to the National Football League and this free agent frenzy that has taken us by storm here this past uh, week. Been a ton of free agent signings so far. I'm just going to break down the major uh, names or the big names that you'll recognize by position group just to make it easiest. I'm not going to cover every single free agent signing, obviously, uh, although, when I start reading these, you might say, it might seem like that. But uh, we'll start off with quarterbacks. Tom Brady wasn't a free agent, but he did sign a four-year contract extension with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That saves the Buccaneers about $19 million against the cap this year. And all other years of the deal are voidable after this one. And this was basically Tom Brady's effort uh, to create cap space to help re-sign some of the other guys that we'll get to here in just a minute to keep the band back together, as Brady would say. Uh, Cam Newton, he re-signed a one-year incentive-based contract with the New England Patriots. Uh, This is basically a a prove-it year, and as you'll find out here, they have put the pieces around him to make him successful. Now, the New Orleans Saints, of course, uh, we'll get into the quarterback situation here and around the island with Drew Brees' retirement, but... Uh, they gave Jameis Winston a one-year, $12 million contract. And in that same uh, situation, they gave Taysom Hill a four-year, $140 million extension. And you heard that right, $140 million for Taysom Hill. Now, his contract, all of the years are voidable. So they can just drop him uh, anytime they'd like. And this year's salary cap hits only $7.5 million. So basically... I would assume that Jameis Winston will go into the season as the New Orleans Saints starter uh, and because Taysom Hill's the gadget guy that can play quarterback, tight end, wide receiver. Whatever you need him to play, he's out there for, So, which is very valuable, and they use him very well. I don't understand how you justify giving Hill anywhere near that much money, but uh, this is a prove-it deal for Winston uh, to, to see if he'll be with the Saints longer than this year. But... Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, or Fitzmagic as he's called, one-year, $10 million deal with the Washington football team to take over as their starter. Uh, Andy Dalton, one-year, $10 million deal that could go to $13 million uh, with the Chicago Bears, which is very interesting because Mitchell Trubisky signed a one-year deal with the Buffalo Bills to be their backup. So Andy Dalton... Uh, is basically the your starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears for the 2021 season, which he was the backup in Dallas last year and ended up having to play more than he probably thought he was going to with Dak's injury, but not sure what the Bears are doing, but I don't think Dalton is their answer uh, to get to the playoffs. Jacoby Brissett, one-year deal with the Miami Dolphins to back up Tua Tagovailoa. And then Tyrod Taylor, the most interesting quarterback signing – One-year deal worth uh, up to $12.5 million with the Houston Texans. And that's very interesting because uh, with all the Deshaun Watson news coming out that we'll get to here uh, and around the island, basically there's a solid chance that Tyrod Taylor could be the Texans' starting quarterback this year, whether Watson's traded or he sits out or whatever. uh, There's a very solid chance Tyrod Taylor could end up being the Texans' starting quarterback. But uh, over to running backs now. Aaron Jones, he was the best running back on the market. He re-signed with the Green Bay Packers, four years, $48 million. Probably could have gotten more on the open market, but decided to stay with Green Bay at a discount. His backfield teammate in Green Bay was Jamal Williams. Jamal Williams bolted for the NFC North Division rival Detroit Lions on a two-year, $7.5 million deal. Carlos Hyde signed two years and six million with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Marlon Mack missed all of last season with a, I believe, a torn Achilles. He re signed with the Indianapolis Colts on a one year, two million dollar deal to further improve their backfield. And this is a signing that I thought was interesting Kenyon Drake, two years and 11 million uh, with up to 14.5 million in incentives with the Las Vegas Raiders. So, of course, you have Josh Jacobs, who's your starter. Uh, They lost Devontae Booker to free agency, to the Giants. Uh, But he backs up Josh Jacobs, but they're paying him, uh, you know, five and a half or between five and a half and seven per year to be the backup running back, which is quite a bit of money. So there might be an interesting timeshare going on in Vegas right now between Drake and Jacobs. Now, this guy's not a running back. He's a fullback, but Kyle Husechek, he's a huge part of that San Francisco 49ers ground game, uh, blocking for those running backs. He signed, uh, re-signed with the 49ers on a five-year, $27 million deal. Uh, over to wide receivers now. Uh, the biggest name to sign so far, Will Fuller. Signed a one-year, $10 million deal with the Miami Dolphins. That's an exceptional signing for the Dolphins. Uh, They already have Devontae Parker uh, as a deep threat. And then you throw Will Fuller on that side. They're starting to put some pieces around Tagovailoa. Marvin Jones Jr., two years and $14.5 million from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Corey Davis, another big-name wide receiver, former top-five pick a few years back. Three years, $37.5 million with the New York Jets. So he becomes the Jets' top receiving option. Emmanuel Sanders, one year and $6 million from the Buffalo Bills. That's an interesting signing too because that just gives them even more depth and even more speed on that uh, wide receiver group uh, with Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley. New England Patriots signed a pair of wide receivers. Nelson Aguilar got two years, $26 million, and Kendrick Bourne got three years, $22.5 million. Uh, Patriots are not done. We'll get into them more here in a minute. John Ross got one-year $2.5 million from the New York Giants. Perennial Pro Bowler A.J. Green, he's definitely on the back end of his career. Uh, battled injuries the last several years. Had a couple of touchdowns last year. Signed a one-year $8.5 million deal with the Arizona Cardinals, who uh, also have DeAndre Hopkins and Larry Fitzgerald. So that uh, that wide receiver room is crowded in Arizona and then Curtis Samuel three years 34 and a half million from the Washington football team pairs him with uh, former Ohio State teammate Terry McLaurin uh, both of those guys can go that is some serious speed they have on the outside with both of those guys and uh, I would that that just gives Fitzpatrick uh, some weapon you know some weaponry on the outside and um, Tight ends, interesting signings here. John U. Smith was your top tight end. Four years, $50 million from the New England Patriots, who also signed Hunter Henry, three years, $37.5 million. So the Patriots signed the top two tight ends in free agency for a combined seven years, $87.5 million. Dollars. In addition to those other two, Aguilar and uh, Bourne, the wide receivers they signed. So they are definitely not giving Cam Newton any excuses to fail at the moment. Uh, Rob Gronkowski, 1 year 10 million uh re-signed with the Tampa Bay Bucks. Gerald Everett, 1 year and 6 million from the Seattle Seahawks. Jared Cook, 1 year 6 million with the LA Chargers. Of course he sat out opted out last year uh, due to COVID. Kyle Rudolph, longtime Vikings tight end, signed a two-year, $16 million deal with the New York Giants to give uh, them another offensive threat uh, in the red zone. Uh, On the offensive line, the biggest signing of free agency so far outside of Dak Prescott was Trent Williams, offensive tackle for the San Francisco 49ers. He re-signed with San Francisco at six years, $138 $138 million, which makes him the highest-paid offensive lineman in NFL history. Uh, Joe Thune, five years and $80 million from the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs last week released both of their starting tackles on the offensive line, so they had to uh, replace those via free agency or the draft in order to keep uh, Patrick Mahomes upright. But they didn't stop at Joe Thune. They also signed Kyle Long to a one-year $5 million deal. And I mentioned Kyle Long had you know retired in January of 2020 due to some several serious injuries. Well, he came out of retirement, and he's on with the Kansas City Chiefs. Got a legit chance to win a Super Bowl now. Uh, Kevin Zeitler, three years, $22.5 million with the Baltimore Ravens. And then Corey Lindsley, who's a center, went from the Packers over to the Los Angeles Chargers on a five-year, $62.5 million deal. So they're paying substantial money to Corey Lindsley. Chargers are. Now on the defensive line, Trey Hendrickson got four years and $60 million from the Cincinnati Bengals, who are trying to uh, improve that defense all the way around. Carl Lawson, he went from Cincinnati to the New York Jets at three years and $45 million. Leonard Williams, New York Giants, he re-signed with them after being franchise tagged for the second year in a row, three years and $63 million. So big money for him. Uh, Solomon Thomas, he was a top three pick in the draft a few years back. He just uh, signed a one-year deal with the Las Vegas Raiders. Now your linebackers, that is where the big money was. Uh, starts off with Shaq Barrett, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They opted not to franchise tag him, but they went ahead and paid him handsomely. Four years, $72 million to re-sign with the Buccaneers. Keep him in that linebacking core. They had already signed Levante David as well. Uh, Yannick Gakway, two years, $26 million with the Las Vegas Raiders. Leonard Floyd, four years, $64 million with the LA Rams. Bud Dupree. Five years, $82.5 million with the Tennessee Titans. So the Steelers opted not to franchise tag Dupree, and on he goes to Tennessee to the tune of $16.5 million per year. Matthew Judon decided to go from Baltimore over to the New England Patriots. Four years, $56 million. Heavy money there, again, by the Patriots. Uh, P- Carolina Panthers signed a couple of good, good young linebackers, Hassan Reddick, one year, $8.5 million, was a pressure and sack machine last year for the Cardinals. And then Denzel Perryman got a two-year deal with Carolina. In the secondary, uh, Shaquille Griffin, corner, uh, went from the Seahawks over all the way across the country to the Jacksonville Jaguars on a three-year, $44.5 million deal. Good signing by Jacksonville, gives them an anchor in the secondary that they can uh, work with and help build around William Jackson got 3 years and 42 million from the Washington football team who again are trying to um, repeat as NFC East champ something that hasn't been done in uh, over 15 years Jalen Mills 4 years 24 million with the New England Patriots again you see the Patriots come up Ronald Darby 3 years 30 million for the Denver Broncos Janoris Jenkins, he signed with the Tennessee Titans. A couple of Dallas Cowboys here, Chidobe Awuzie. he left Dallas to go sign three years with the Cincinnati Bengals. But Jordan Lewis, he re-signed with Dallas, three years, $16.5 million. And I like that. I'm a little sad to see Chidobe go, but I do like Jordan Lewis. He's a good slot corner, and I have a feeling we're probably going to be looking at one of the top two corners in the draft here with the 10th overall pick. Now, the biggest name on the defensive uh, secondary is Patrick Peterson. He signed a one-year, $10 million deal with the Minnesota Vikings. Now, he's obviously past his prime, but he brings great depth to that Vikings secondary room who has a couple of young starters, and in including first-round pick from last year, Jeff Gladney. But uh, you saw the New England Patriots. Their name just kept coming up. And I don't even mention all the, the all of the free agent signings they have. They spent over two hundred million dollars in free agency, which for them is unheard of. Uh, it's, it's the second highest total in an off season in their franchise's history. Um, we we're just not used to seeing Bill Belichick and company spend big money on free agents, but uh, it was necessary to get them, uh, you know, competitive in the AFC East again. With, of course, the Bills. Uh, looking solid as ever, and the Miami Dolphins really uh, improving all around, and they have the draft capital to really take the next step here this year. But Jacksonville Jaguars, they've also made a couple of big moves on both sides of the ball uh, with Marvin Jones as a wide receiver uh, to help their first overall pick, more than likely Trevor Lawrence, uh, get him a weapon to throw to. And then on the defensive side, uh, Shaquille Griffin. It's great. Uh, cover corner So Jacksonville is making some moves And um, the AFC South uh, May uh, be Even more competitive than it has been the last Few years between Titans, Jaguars And the uh, Colts Because the Texans sure are not competing In that But in addition to all those free agent signings There were a few trades First one was Miami and Houston The Dolphins sent linebacker Shaq Lawson to the Texans In exchange for linebacker Uh, Bednardrick McKinney. They also swapped a couple of late-round draft picks. Uh, Another trade, Los Angeles Rams. They sent defensive end Michael Brockers to the Detroit Lions for a seventh-round pick in 2023. And this is the second trade between the teams so far this offseason. As you remember, Matthew Stafford and Jared Goff got traded for one another uh, about a month ago. Now, this trade is very interesting because... Michael Brockers had made a comment uh, after Goff got traded about how Matthew Stafford was a big upgrade over Jared Goff and he was looking forward to the season. Well, now Michael Brockers is now back playing on the same team as Jared Goff. So that is going to be a tad awkward in the locker room. But a couple other trades real quick. Jacksonville Jaguars, they traded an unspecified draft pick to the New Orleans Saints in exchange for defensive tackle Malcolm Brown. Another good, solid signing. Uh, Brown ended up signing a two-year, $11 million deal with the Jaguars after the trade. So uh, another good depth signing by the Tech or by the Jaguars. And then the last trade was the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, they traded their center, Rodney Hudson, who's a great center, uh, and a seventh-round pick to the Arizona Cardinals in exchange for a third-round pick. So that's a huge upgrade for the Cardinals on that offensive line because they have to keep Kyler Murray upright in order for Murray to be able to throw to those three wide receivers I mentioned a little bit ago, Hopkins Green or Fitzgerald. Uh, that offense is uh, turning into a, a pretty pretty prolific offense, so uh, getting an anchor at center like Rodney Hudson's uh, a huge upgrade for the Cardinals but we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island and that's where we do some quick hit topics from across the various sports and we'll start off in Major League Baseball and we have officially crossed over that March 14th threshold so now all of the spring training games will be the regular nine innings as opposed to five or seven as they have been. Uh, Teams have Uh, Released their 40-man rosters in preparation for the season that's starting in just a couple of short weeks. So uh, there might be some further changes amongst rosters there, but it's looking like most clubs have their rosters in place for the regular season. Now, a very odd story here for Major League Baseball. LeBron James has become... That's right, LeBron James of the NBA has become a partner in the Fenway Sports Group, which now makes him part owner of the Boston Red Sox. Now, mind you, he's an Ohio dude. Born and raised in Cleveland, we all know that. He's a fan of the Cleveland baseball team, because remember, there's no more Indians. It's the Cleveland, whatever they decide to be called, baseball team. So it's strange that LeBron, as an Indians fan, would become part owner of the Boston Red Sox. but I was thinking about it, and he kind of went to l a to play for the Lakers under the tutelage of Magic Johnson, who of course was a su- successful player and then became uh, owner part owner of The Lakers, owner slash GM or whatever his official title was. So I think that's what LeBron is doing. I think he is is setting himself up. He's certainly making enough money uh, over his career between salaries and endorsements that he could probably afford to own or partially own a sports franchise when he retires. So I think that's what he's planning on doing. I think he's just getting his foot in the door here by becoming a partial owner of the Boston Red Sox. And I guess if you're going to own a baseball team, Boston would probably be one of the top three teams that you would want to own, maybe outside of the Yankees and Dodgers. But, yeah, very interesting situation there. Now, we'll move over uh, to the National Basketball Association real quick. A few trades to get into. I kind of mentioned this uh, in the standings update. The first trade is between the Detroit Pistons and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Well, Oklahoma City sent Hamadou Diallo to the Pistons in exchange for Svi Mikaliuk and a 2022 second-round pick. Now, Mikaliuk and the pick, not really sure on Mikaliuk, but Hamadou Diallo was the 45th overall pick in the 2018 draft uh, he went to Kentucky. He won the slam dunk contest in 2019. He had the cape on, if you remember that. So he goes to the Pistons. And that's a good move for the for Detroit because uh, they're in full rebuild mode, and Diallo would be, is a nice young piece to add to that. Now, Oklahoma City wasn't done there. They made another trade with Miami Heat. Oklahoma City sent Trevor Arisa to Miami in exchange for Myers Leonard, and a 2027 second round pick now Myers Leonard was just in the news last week for some questionable comments that he made so Oklahoma City has already said that he's not part of their plans and he will be released as soon as the trade goes through so Trevor Arisa is basically getting traded for a second round pick six drafts from now uh, very interesting that's a, that's a hell of a bargain for the uh, Miami Heat who as we've talked about been playing some really good ball lately and you add Trevor Arisa to that crew that's playing that well that is going to be looking good for them uh, the other trade in the NBA uh, Houston Rockets that complete disaster of a team that you call Houston Rockets they traded P.J. Tucker Rodion's Curix, and the Milwaukee Bucks first round pick in 2022 over to the Milwaukee Bucks in exchange for DJ, uh, DJ Augustine, DJ Wilson, and a 2023 unprotected first round pick. So they basically, Houston has an absolute ton of first round picks because of that James Harden deal. So they sent Milwaukee's first round pick that they obtained back to Milwaukee uh that pj tucker going to milwaukee is that's a dagger for the eastern conference uh, i don't think you know walker or tucker rather he can he can shoot the 3 and he can play d and that's kind of the new nba like i was talking about last week 3 and d you know shoot the 3 get back and hopefully you don't give up a 3 because that's trading threes is the name of the game so that gives milwaukee an extra three point shooter And the trade deadline for both the NHL and the NBA are coming within the next couple of weeks. So I would fully suspect to hear plenty of more trades get discussed here uh, and around the island on the next couple of episodes until those deadlines pass. But some interesting news out of the NBA is that the NBA and the NBA Players Association, they came out they announced that they've made some changes to their health and safety protocols that offer expanded benefits uh, to the players and personnel that have been fully vaccinated. So the changes specifically apply to individuals in the league that are two weeks past their final dose of the COVID vaccine and specifically... uh, Teams where 85% of the players and 85% of the staff members are fully vaccinated, meaning they've received, they're two weeks beyond receiving their uh, second dose of the vaccine. Now, the major benefits to those changes is that fully vaccinated uh, individuals within an organization no longer have to quarantine following an exposure to COVID. Okay, so that should help limit the number of postponements. Uh, they can also have family and friends visit at home and on the road without having to get them tested or register them with the team. And then the main thing for the players, probably getting you know more normalcy back for them, is that they can dine outdoors at restaurants. So pretty cool that the NBA is, has amended their health and safety protocols on that. I would fully suspect that other leagues will probably follow suit on that. Uh, But we'll zip over real quick back to the National Football League. A couple of important topics to get into there. The first one, New Orleans Saints, longtime quarterback Drew Brees. He officially announced his retirement from the NFL this past week. Uh, He played 20 seasons in the NFL uh, with the San Diego Chargers, the back then San Diego Chargers and the New Orleans Saints. And Drew Brees is obviously a surefire Hall of Famer, first ballot Hall of Famer here when he's eligible in a few years. And here are some of his accolades during his uh, illustrious career in the NFL. Drew Brees retires as the all-time leader in passing yards with 80,358. And... All-time leader in completions, 7,142. Second in passing touchdowns with 571. Uh, He will get passed in passing yards this year by Tom Brady. Uh, But Drew Brees is a 13-time Pro Bowler, two-time Offensive Player of the Year, led the NFL in passing yards seven times, and then he won Super Bowl forty-four and also the Super Bowl forty-four MVP. And he's the only player to ever have five seasons with 5,000 passing yards. He is just a consummate professional, and he meant more to the city of New Orleans than any other athlete has meant to their city in any other sport. Uh, I, just, I truly believe that. He came to New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina, and bringing that Super Bowl to that organization just a few years after that, uh really Drew Brees is uh he's probably gonna get a key to the city of New Orleans if he hasn't already. And uh the dude is just outstanding quarterback. So congrats to Drew Brees on one hell of a career. But the other NFL topic is our regularly scheduled Deshaun Watson saga. But this time it has nothing to do with the trade, although Trade rumors are still flying around, especially as we get closer to the draft. But this time, it deals with Deshaun Watson being the subject of a lawsuit that was filed against him, alleging sexual assault. Now, a massage therapist in Houston was giving Deshaun Watson a massage and claimed that Deshaun Watson, quote, went too far. Now, he was receiving the massage, so... Uh, One report that I read indicated that he maybe made some sexual advancements or something, but uh, nothing uh, is confirmed. Now, Deshaun Watson responded to the lawsuit being filed against him by saying, and this is a direct quote uh, from Watson's social media, and it says, As a result of a social media post by a publicity-seeking plaintiff's lawyer, I recently became aware of a lawsuit that has apparently been filed against me. I have not yet seen the complaint, but I know this. I have never treated any woman with anything other than the utmost respect. The plaintiff's lawyer claims that this is not about money, but before filing the suit, he made a baseless six-figure settlement demand, which I quickly rejected. Unlike him, This isn't about money for me. This is about clearing my name, and I look forward to doing that. Close quote. So based on Watson's quote there, it sounds like he knew that something was coming down the pipe because the plaintiff's lawyer made a six-figure settlement demand, which Watson and his team declined. Um, So he knew something was going on. Now, Watson obviously wholeheartedly denies these allegations, which I, I, you know, we've seen this before in other sports, uh, other athletes, where you know, they have money and somebody wants some money that they dealt with, and so they make a baseless uh, allegation claiming whatever that will help get them some of the athletes money. Um, So, I would like to believe that Watson uh, is not guilty of anything like that. He seems to be a great dude, Uh, you know, on the field, great leader. Uh, I don't see him doing that. But again, you know, you never know in this day and age. But I'll give Deshaun Watson the benefit of the doubt and believe that this is a money-grab attempt by this massage therapist. Now, since that first lawsuit was filed, there has been a second lawsuit that was filed regarding similar incidents. So, you know, definitely stay tuned on that. Watson's name is still coming up in trade rumors, left and right. Uh, I've seen the New York Jets, the Miami Dolphins, Carolina Panthers, still as your top few teams, uh, you know, to, to be in the running for him. But not that he's available. And the Texans continue to stand by the fact that they're not trading him, but uh, again, if you're Houston, I don't see why you wouldn't. You know, they've obviously made a couple of free agent signings uh, to help their overall team performance. But I just, I don't see Watson playing this year if he's not traded. I think he'll sit out. But that that whole situation with Deshaun Watson is just getting out of control. Definitely something to continue to monitor and uh, I'm sure we'll have some more information on that next week. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League. A few pieces of news here. St. Louis Blues, their goaltender Jordan Bennington, the two agreed on a six-year contract extension worth $36 million. Now, I'm not good at math, but that should put it around a $6 million annual average uh, value. Now, Jordan Bennington, this is his, uh, I believe, his third year in the NHL. Uh, He won the Stanley Cup as a rookie a few years ago with the Blues. Just kind of bust onto the scene late in the season and really kind of carried them in the playoffs. But since then, he's just been mediocre. Um, I wouldn't say he's... Is he a good goalie? Yes. But he's not an elite-level goalie like the Blues probably make him out to be now he also tries to play enforcer because he's been known to try and fight players on the other team he had an incident like that a few weeks back now that's not exactly what I'm wanting in my franchise goalie but the contract makes Bennington the ninth highest paid goalie in the league currently so I do think that St. Louis that's probably about where Bennington's Salary should be um, if it's the ninth highest paid. Uh, I would say he's he's probably right on the edge of being a top ten goalie, but his salary indicates that he is a top ten goalie. So um, interesting there for the Blues. Now the other uh, one, other piece of NHL news. I mentioned the Buffalo Sabers. More on them here and around the island, which. Here we are. The Sabres have fired their head coach, Ralph Kruger, And this move comes 12 days after GM Kevin Adams called out the team's competitiveness and Coach Kruger and his ability to coach, basically. Now, the Sabres, I told you, their last place in Mass Mutual East Division, just a complete uh, mess right now. They've lost... 12 straight games, to be exact, and they're just they're just not a good team. Jack Eichel is out indefinitely with an injury, and I'm wondering how much of that. He was speculation of, of, of trade rumors a couple of weeks ago, and now he's out with some injury that's going to keep him out for a while. I'm, I'm wondering if that's not just a, a ploy to get him traded and just com- completely just you know, just uh, blow this thing up and and rebuild again for Buffalo. But they're in a really competitive division. Uh, They will not be competitive in that division for several, several years. But the final piece of NHL news uh, also deals with another team in the Mass Mutual East Division. That's the New York Islanders. I mentioned that they've just won nine games in a row before finally losing to the Washington Capitals. Uh, Well, their cap, the Islanders' captain, Anders Lee, he's out for the rest of the year after having surgery to repair a torn ACL. Now, Anders Lee got hurt back on March 11th in a game against the New Jersey Devils. And he just had surgery uh, in the middle of the week here. So he's done for the year, and that's a big blow. He's a huge – obviously, he's the captain of the team, but – uh, as far as production goes, he's a big part of that team as well. So for a team that's looking to be solidly in the playoffs if they continue their pace, uh, that is a big, big loss for the for the Islanders. Now, we'll move over real quick to the NCAA and we'll go college football this time. couple interesting notes from college football, the first of which deals with, Uh, A rules change The NCAA football rules committee Has proposed a rule change For college football And that proposal Deals with the overtime In college football Which some of you may be a fan of Some of you might not be a fan of But the proposal States that teams are going to be required To run two point conversion plays After scoring a touchdown In the second overtime Normally, that's not until after the third overtime. Uh, But they're making that a requirement in the second overtime. And then after that, they would run nothing but alternating two-point conversion plays if the game goes three overtimes or longer. So they're basically trying to shorten the game. Uh, Now, the, uh, the rule change also would make it to where the teams no longer start their offensive possessions on the opponent's 25 after the second overtime. So you're basically running alternating two-point plays. So you play two overtimes. You have to go for two on the second overtime. And after the second overtime, you just go straight to alternating uh, two-point conversion plays to try and get a winner. And the purpose of that is obviously to shorten the games so you're not having some six, seven overtime overtime game that lasts forever, and you also limit the chance of any injuries. If you shorten shorten the length of the overtimes, you limit the chance of injury. At least that's what you do in theory. Well, the rules change must be approved by the NCAA Playing Rules Oversight Panel, which is scheduled to discuss that proposal on April 22nd, so in just over a month. We will have an answer on that, so that'll be interesting to stay tuned on that with uh, spring practices getting underway for most colleges. But the other piece of college football news deals with the NCAA football video game that I've talked about a couple times previously on this podcast. And according to Matt Brown, who is a publisher of uh, Extra Points... He obtained documentation from the CLC, which is the Collegiate Licensing Company, in which the CLC told some of the FBS institutions that EA Sports intends to release the new NCAA football video game in July of 2023. Man, I hope that's a lot sooner than that, because that's still over two years away from video game release now there's already been three schools uh, Notre Dame Northwestern and Tulane to opt out of the video game until the uh, name image and likeness bills have been passed which would allow the student athletes to make money off of their name image and likeness so if that is truly the correct release date or if it's something similar to that two years from now Uh, I would have to think that the name, image, and likeness bills will have already gone through the courts and will have already been passed and approved and set into into motion. So, I guess the the good news about that long delay for the release of the game is that you can have a full complement of teams as opposed to several teams missing from the game due to that name, image, and likeness uh, situation. But... Man, I hope I hope that both of those get figured out quicker than two years. I hope the, the courts pass the uh, name, image, and likeness bill, and I hope the video game itself comes out sooner than two years from now because I am dying to play that. They haven't released a game uh, since 2013, and it was NCAA football 2014 was the name of the game. But we'll zip back over to the PGA Tour to kind of wrap things up here. Uh Tiger Woods, he returned home from the hospital uh to continue his recovery at home. Of course, uh his car wreck was February twenty-third. So it's been just about a month since that when he wrecked that uh rental car at Rancho Palos Palo Verdes, California. So uh, all accounts indicate that he's doing well. Um He has not gotten an infection. He had that open wound compound fracture of his leg. So it seems as though he is on the right track to uh, recovering. Uh, He's still got quite a ways to go, but it's nice to hear that he's doing well so far. Other piece of golf news, world's number one golfer, Dustin Johnson. He has opted out of the 2021 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, Japan. Of course, those Olympics were scheduled to be played last year, uh, but with the pandemic, that did not happen. Now, DJ said that he's skipping the Olympics in order to prepare for the Open Championship, which is right before the Olympic break, and the World Golf Championship St. Jude Invitational, which is immediately after the Olympics. So DJ is wanting to focus on the FedEx Cup events instead of going to participate in the Olympics. So with DJ's opt-out of the Olympics, the top four golfers, well, either way, whether or not DJ opted out, the top four Americans in the World Golf Rankings after June's U.S. Open are automatic qualifiers to represent Team USA in golf at the Olympics. So you take DJ out of the mix now. Your top four golfers... Uh, American-born golfers in the world rankings are now Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, Bryson DeChambeau, and Xander Shoffley. And with how those four guys have played so far this year, I would fully suspect that those four will stay as the top four ranked American golfers, uh, Sands, Dustin Johnson, And uh, I would suspect that those are your four U.S. representatives uh, for golf uh, for the Tokyo Olympics, which that's a pretty good set of four players right there, assuming none of those four opt out. uh, The U.S. is looking really good uh, for golf. If you recall back in 2016, the Olympics uh, in Rio, Justin Rose from England was your gold medal winner there. So Hopefully the U.S. can, uh, with, that, with that set of golfers can, can get uh, a gold medal uh, for us at the Olympics. But that is going to wrap up the 32nd episode of the Sports Island Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Uh, as always, rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. And uh, you can also find the podcast on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. So until next week, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.